Welcome to the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. And now your host of the show, Dr. Jennifer K. Thompson. Hi there, and thanks for joining us today. I'm about to share with you a conversation that I recently had with Greg Newburn, the Director of Criminal Justice at the Niskanen Center. Uh, you will hear a little bit about in our conversation the Niskanen Center and what they do and specifically what Greg does there. He will also talk a little bit about his previous organization, Families Against Mandatory Minimums, and what they do. While he was there, he was the state policy director and the Florida director. He's also been the director of student programs at the Cato Institute. Greg is a graduate of the University of Florida and the University of Florida Levin College of Law. So Greg's work is very interesting. We've had folks on to talk about criminal justice reform in the past. The reason we went to talk to Greg today uh, was to talk about an article he recently published in The Hill. And the title of that article was Fixing the Police and Reducing Homicide. Yes, Congress can do both. We thought this was a great piece to look at for Civil Squared, because what Greg does in the piece is argue that if we are going to be at the opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to thinking about efficient policing, either abolish or defund the police, or don't question the police and support them without raising questions, uh, back the blue, that kind of thing, which he acknowledges are extreme positions and probably in the minority. But if we are going to insist on holding those as the two possibilities when we think about police reform, we're going to have a hard time finding effective ways to address what affects every one of us, whether we are on the right or the left, and that is recent increases in homicide, particularly homicides uh, through gun violence. So we talk about that with Greg. We talk about how you can talk about this subject with people in your life and if it's a subject you're concerned about what you can do to have an impact i hope you enjoyed the conversation we were really excited to talk to you because uh because of the work you're doing we want to hear about your work um and especially because the subject of you know, um, criminal justice reform, but not just that sort of reform among police, as well as, um, you know, increasing violence or subjects that are in the news right now. And we know a lot of people in our audience probably would like to know more about that. So can, can we just start a little bit with your background and how you got into the work that you're doing? And just so people have a sense of who you are and why this is an important subject for you. Sure. And, and first, thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to the, the conversation. Um, so I've been part of the larger, I guess, what you'd call criminal justice reform movement for a little more than a decade. Um, I'm currently the director of criminal justice policy at the Scannon Center. Uh, but prior to that, I spent uh, about 10 years at Families Against Mandatory Minimums, which is known as FAM now, doing sentencing reform and prison reform work, primarily at the state level and primarily within the state level here in Florida where I I live and I'm still based. I know about FAM's work, but I think that sometimes people don't actually even know about mandatory minimums, that they exist. Can you just talk briefly about that so people understand what FAM does? Yeah, including the people who are subjected to them. They don't know that they exist, as a matter of fact, which is one of the reasons they don't work. 
so a mandatory minimum is a statutory floor below which judges are not allowed to sentence defendants who are convicted of certain crimes. Uh, we see them most often in drug cases and in gun cases, uh, mm-hmm. but there are hundreds of mandatory minimums on the books uh, all over the country at the federal level as well. But most of the time, you know, someone gets caught up in a drug conspiracy or they get uh, charged with selling drugs or possessing drugs above certain quantities and uh, they face certain minimum sentences, right? So 15 years right. in prison, if, you know. Regardless of the circumstances or anything else, if they're convicted 15 years. Correct, right? So if you yeah. have, you know, some amount of crack cocaine uh, or some amount of opioid pills or something uh, and you're pulled over and you, uh, you're you arrested and convicted of that crime, possession or, or sale of, of those drugs, then no matter what, um, and there, there are some nuances at the federal level, but the, the basic idea is without some sort of safety valve or um, something that allows the judge to depart, then you go to prison for a mandated period of time. Irrespective, it could be your first offense yeah. or your 50th. It could be, you know, you've never, never been in trouble with the law, never had a speeding ticket, but if you're caught, you're going to prison no matter what. So, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, we, so we spend a lot of time and FAM's been around, this is a, the 30th year of, of, of FAM. Um, and we spend most of our time trying to roll back those laws because the evidence is overwhelming that they don't work. Yeah. Um, they, but they do create these massive negative unintended consequences. They send people to prison unnecessarily. They waste billions of dollars and resources that could be used to actually fight crime effectively and so on. So uh, yeah. we, we had some success at rolling back those laws in Florida and, uh, and a few other places around the country. And, and I think the trend is away from, from yeah. that now. I think for several decades, the, the trend was basically just a ratchet up sentence length, uh, no matter what the crime du jour the response yeah. was just a ratchet up sentence length. And I think a lot of people are coming to their senses now. Sorry to interrupt you about that. That's just one of those subjects that I think people don't always know about. And we'll link in the show notes so people can check it out. But it's also another good example of something where there are unintended consequences. People think it's a good idea in the fight against, you know, the escalation of drugs and the drug war and everything else that, you know, mandatory minimums make a lot of sense. But there are these consequences that later on prove to be um, counter counterproductive, I suppose. So, sorry, I just wanted to, I interrupted you talking about where you are now and what you're doing now. Well, now uh, I'm at the Niskanen Center, which is a think tank in Washington, D.C. And uh, it's a it's a brand new department at the Niskanen Center, the criminal justice department. The Niskanen Center has been around for several years. Um, they, or we, I suppose, focus on several different policy areas from regulation and social policy to poverty climate change, immigration. And um, I think typically the Niskanen model is to look at some issue area and rather than just reinvent the wheel, Mm. the folks at Niskanen say, well, is there something missing in the debate? Is there something that isn't being said? Is the debate over a particular issue area, has it become unproductive or has it become stale? Or is there some policy out there that that needs to be advocated in, in a way that it isn't now and, and again, so in each of those areas where they've, they've been involved for several years, I think they found those, hmm. those little niche areas where they can be uh, useful in the debate. And criminal justice was another one where the idea basically was the, the debate over a lot of these issues has become polarized. It's become yeah. unproductive. And um, while there is a, a, an almost universal agreement that much of the criminal justice system is broken, 
there's very little agreement about why it's broken mm -hmm. and there's very little agreement about how to fix it. And so yeah. given the state of affairs, they, they went ahead and, and created our department and, uh, and I was fortunate enough to, to be able to take over and looking forward to doing some good work. That's awesome. So this is, this is a perfect setup in a way to the topic that we want to talk about today, because I think it's, uh, it's a subject where there might be bipartisan agreement that things are not good, but there's not necessarily any agreement about how to address that. So let's start with here we are in July of 2021, a couple of different things. And I, and, and I want to ask you to to provide some more context and background on these things, but I'm going to give you, um, I'm going to give you kind of a, I don't know, a view of what I imagine a lot of people in our audience are thinking when they think about where things stand today. So on the one hand, probably regardless of your, your political ideology or affiliation, you're concerned about the police. You might be concerned about the police because you think they're ineffective or you think they're irresponsible or there are too many bad cops, or you might be concerned about the police because you think they're getting a bad rap, right? Um, and like many subjects that get discussed at the level of headlines or they, they come from, you know, the discussion comes from headlines, there is some sense in which there are, you know, exaggerated kind of ends of the spectrum here. But, but I think it's fair to say that, the, that most people in our audience are at least concerned about policing in, in one way or another. At the same time, even if you were somebody, say, who was really interested in police reform because you leaned more towards there's too many cases of irresponsible um, or use of force or whatever it is, you look at what's going on in the United States in terms of crime and say, but every, everything I hear is about crime going up, violent crime. You know, um, We see stuff about New York, um, about cities during the pandemic, you know, that you could you could be forgiven for having the sense from reading the news that like, you know, most of our downtown areas are like these wastelands where there's just criminals running, you know, right. Um, those are two sort of what we may think about as issues that are going on. One, I guess, is in both cases, is that a fair assessment of where things stand right now? Um, which parts of that picture might be exaggerations. And then after that, you know, I want to get into how we kind of thread the needle there. But, but if we can, let's just talk about the facts of where we are today on those two, those two fronts. Sure. Um, you know, I, I think police issues often in a, in a particularly unproductive way become proxies for larger culture war fights. And they start to become ways in which people define their own political and cultural identities. Sure. And so instead of just a, an objective issue or problem that needs to be solved, it becomes, a, a, again, a way to define a person's identity. So yeah. you filter all information through that particular identity screen. And so you tend to, like, if you're an I'm a back the blue yeah. person... Well, then you're going to filter all of this information about policing through that lens and just human nature being what it is, we tend to ignore the things that don't conform to our mm. ideological priors. And the same thing goes for the folks. If you're like, an, I'm a defund the police person. Yeah. 
you tend not to look at at the evidence in a in an objective way. You you look at it through the lens of this identity screen, and and I think it is a particularly unproductive way to look at this issue. And and I think a lot of people do this with a lot of issues, but this one, it really does harm the debate and harm the discussion about how to move things forward and how to reform the things that need to be reformed. Because on one hand, you have folks who say, who are unwilling to recognize any fault or any problems with modern policing. And, And to some degree, that's a character. There are very few of those people, but they exist. And then on the other hand, you have people who just simply refuse to recognize that police offer any benefit whatsoever. Right. So if it's either that one or the other of those things, there is no way to reconcile those two points of view. Right. Exactly right. If you are a person who wants to abolish the police because of some ideological prior. Right. You just don't Mm -hmm. believe that the police are a legitimate thing. You think, you know, oh, it's uh, they're just modern slave patrols or whatever it is. Right. If you just think that they are intrinsically an unjust institution then there is no such thing as reform of that institution the only just thing you can do is to abolish it altogether but to get to that position you really do have to ignore just a massive amount of evidence that police reduce crime and that police really do provide significant public benefit and that the the levels of police matter in terms of of reducing violent crime and particularly of homicides and maintaining social order and all of those things. Um, and, and at the same time, if you're a, a sort of a back the blue partisan, because you very vehemently believe that they, that police do provide these, these public benefits and you're right about that, mm-hmm. but because you perceive the institution to be under unfair attack, mm-hmm. your response is going to be, to ignore the things that you might not otherwise ignore if it, right. if it weren't under what you perceive to be unfair attack. And so when someone points out that there really have been problematic ways that policing has been conducted through the years and that there really have been just shocking abuses of power uh, in, in, that are sort of structurally inherent to a lot of police departments and, and have been through the years, um, you tend to ignore those things or look the other way or say, well, you know, they do other good things or what about this over here? Mm-hmm. And both of those extremes, like I said, are just particularly unproductive. And as I said, in, in the piece in the Hill, if we are to move beyond policing as a culture war proxy, and if we are actually, you know, if we do want to get to a point where we can have a productive conversation about this, it's going to require everybody to concede what I call, you know, potentially uncomfortable truths about the police. Yeah. And, and if you are a, a defund or abolish the police progressive, you are going to have to recognize that the police do provide substantial public safety benefits and, and social order benefits. And if you're a, a back the blue type populist or conservative, you really ought to recognize that there have been problems with policing. Um, and again, so some of this is caricatures on both sides, but, but that really is the fundamental disconnect that has made this discussion difficult and has made these, these reform efforts uh, difficult to actually accomplish. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that is, I, I love the way you've laid that kind of analysis out. And we talk a lot to, when we talk to folks on the podcast, we talk a lot about various issues, whether it's um, uh, conversations about race or it's conversations about some, some set of political issues that winding up on one or the other of two extremes is very seldom going to be especially helpful in practical policy kind of application, right? And that uh, we, you know, it's also unfair to an individual who has concerns, whether it's about uh, the way police are perceived or uh, that police have too much power or whatever it is, it's unfair to characterize somebody who has concerns on either side of that as having to hold a whole set of views. Like most of us are probably somewhere closer to the middle, but it's hard to articulate the moderate position or the, here's my position, but I have these concerns without getting boxed into a corner. Having said that though, this issue is probably different because crime is something that is really you know, we all have concerns about crime, whoever we are, we have, I mean, I, maybe there are people out there who are like, oh, I'm not worried about crime at all. Like, you know, whatever, it's, it's not a problem. Let's defund the police. I mean, even people who want to defund the police, I don't think, think crime is not a problem. They just think that policing is not the response to it or not the most effective response to it. But, but it's true that there is an increase in crime in the United States. Well, it's certainly true that there's been an increase in homicides and, yeah, okay. and non-fatal shootings over the past several years with a, with a particularly high spike in the last couple of years. Um, I think the 2020 spike in homicides in more than 30 cities was the, the highest year-over-year mm-hmm. increase in homicides in, in at least the last several decades. And the homicide rate now is still lower than it was, say, in, in 1980, a little bit more than half of what it was in 1980, but it's certainly higher um, now than it has been over the last couple of decades. And that's, and that's a troubling trend. Mm-hmm. And uh, while most crime continues to fall, property crimes and things like that, most crime, in, in fact, even most violent crimes have continued to fall, homicides have spiked considerably. And obviously that's the the crime that most people are going to care most about. It's the costliest crime and it's mm-hmm. not even close uh, in terms of the, just the economic costs associated mm-hmm. with any given crime. I've seen estimates that, that say every homicide has an economic cost of around $8 million. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and not to put this in, in economic terms, but when you, when you look at crimes across the spectrum, right? Like yeah. A burglary just simply isn't as serious as a homicide, right? You can rank these offenses in some way. And homicide is the most serious offense. And that's the one that's that's really spiked. And this is another area where cultural identity screens have created an unproductive conversation. Because if you are a committed criminal justice reformer, or if you're a committed person to, say, decarceration efforts or, or whatever it is, then you have a an incentive to kind of downplay when crime goes up. Oh, well, it's just a blip on the, right. you know, it's a, who knows if this is just noise in the system or, well, it's still lower than it was 30 years ago, or you right. know, they, they tend to make all these excuses. And, and I think that really does a disservice to the conversation Yeah, because, you know, 
it, it, it's cold comfort to tell a mother who just had to bury her son that, well, it was statistically less likely that he would have been shot and killed today than it would have been 30 years yeah. ago. Well, yeah. thanks a lot. Oh, okay. right? yeah. It means a, yeah. means a lot that, mm-hmm. um, and so the thing that, that bothers me at least about all of this is like when people flatly refuse to recognize that there's a, a problem because mm-hmm. they are afraid that the solution to that problem will offend their ideological priors. And yeah. we see this all over the place, but I think you see this a lot now with the criminal justice reform movement, just an inability to recognize that homicides are on the rise, um, full stop, rather than just like, yeah, homicides are up, but let me tell mm. you all the reasons that's not really a big deal, um, yeah. all with an eye toward maintaining their their ideological priors and their political preferences and their policy preferences. Like gun control, right? Like if I acknowledge that homicide is up, somehow it's a slippery slope to the government's coming to take away my guns. Yeah, or, yeah, that's exactly right. Or if I acknowledge that homicides are up, well, then my, do I have to recognize the the broad academic literature that says adding police personnel will yeah. reduce homicides? Well, I don't want to do that, right? Because I'm right. a defund the police, abolish the police person. So I'm not going to recognize that. And so I'm not even going to get to that point because I'm just going to pretend that homicides are not really a big deal after all, because, you know, right. hey, look, if, if it was in 94, it would have been worse. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I think that that, that again, is a, a place where ideological priors interfere with the productive conversation. But to, to as a very long winded way of answering your question, yes, homicides are up. They're up big. It's a big problem all over the country. I don't think it lends itself to any obvious policy answers um at least none that that you could say is sort of like the ironclad like yes this is definitely what every city needs to do in order to reduce them but the first step is simply just acknowledging that the problem exists and then we can start sort of reverse engineering our way back to how we can fix it well and i imagine that the so yeah i mean once you acknowledge that that problem exists and i don't want to diminish what you clarified earlier which is that it's we're talking about homicide other violent crimes are not up and property crimes are not up right yeah most yeah. most crime continues to fall um i mean okay. you see some blips here and there ag assault rates might be up a little bit over the last couple of years but property crime tends to keep falling and most violent crimes have, have kept falling the big outlier in the crime space is homicides and okay. and particularly shooting homicides shooting homicides so we so on the one hand there's this issue about acknowledging it and worry about acknowledging that fact because of what it could lead to in terms of of responses to it but in terms of once you get past acknowledging it, if we were able to get past that, the thinking about solution, I mean, I would think part of the challenge there is maybe when we think about it in terms of discourse at the level of headlines, you know, if you're writing a 500 word piece, you can't go into the nuances of all of this. But presumably, the cause, we don't know exactly what has caused this increase because we don't, we don't have either the distance from it or the time, or we've been in a time of a lot of unusual things happening over the last year and a half or so. Um, Do we know what is causing the increase in homicide? The best answer to that is no, we don't. Mm -hmm. And there are so many variables that go into that, like what causes the, the homicide spike, that it becomes very, very easy to start telling just so stories to explain it. And I think 
once again, a, a very unproductive way to, to think about this is if you start from a, a place where like, oh, well, my preferred policy is X. Well, let me reverse engineer my way back from the homicide yeah. spike to my preferred policy. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I think we see that a lot, especially in an area like this, where it, it's just exceedingly difficult while you're in the middle of it with dozens of variables that could be affecting it to say like, okay, that's, this is why that's happening. And so we're going to yeah. pull this lever over here and that's going to reduce the homicide rate. Um, you know, it's just, there's a lot that goes into it. And I, I am of the opinion that if anybody can say definitively that they know what's causing the homicide spike, they're just, they're lying to themselves or to you. <laughs> and in fact, like, I mean, homicides are up in dozens of cities all across the country. They're up where you have Republican mayors, Democratic mayors, progressive state attorneys, conservative state attorney, like law and order type state attorneys or district attorneys um, in red states and in blue states, big cities and in medium cities. And, and the one constant that you know, that we know about homicides and particularly shootings over many, many decades of research is that, and this is true of, of most crime generally, actually, is it's a hyper local phenomenon. Mm. I mean, we're talking about just a handful of zip codes within a city will have just a massive concentration of, of violent crime and, and particularly homicides. So when we say, you know, that the, the homicide rate is up in, you know, Cleveland, mm-hmm. that's kind of a misnomer. It's not up in Cleveland. It's, it's probably up really big in a very small number of zip codes in a handful of neighborhoods within Cleveland. And the same is true in Jacksonville or wherever. Mm-hmm. And and so the solutions to those things can also tend to need to be hyper-local as well, right? Like, so what will right. work in, in Omaha or Cleveland is not necessarily what's going to work in Jacksonville or Miami. So I think we kind of fool ourselves sometimes into thinking that if we can identify the cause, then we can pull the lever, when in reality, the cause might be different from city yeah. to city, uh, the dynamics are different from city to city. And so these, these places need to figure out what's driving the homicide spike in their place. And then what is, you know, is it open air drug markets? It might be in one place, but it's not in another. Is it right. gangs beefing with one another? Could be in one place, but not in another. Is it, you know, longstanding feuds between neighborhood rivals where one of them shot another one and now it's just a, a long-standing retaliatory violence that needs to be interrupted somehow who knows it could be any of right. those things or a dozen other things um and so part of the job for criminologists and for people who research these things is to kind of unpack what's going on yeah. and then when you figure it out maybe you can start pulling levers one way or the other um but it, it's a very very difficult thing analytically and and it's a difficult thing to to, to just put into practice to figure out how to how to reduce them. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, even if you get, let's so let's say we can get past acknowledging the increase in homicides um, and uh, we can get to the point where we can say we can identify causes for those increases, but they're not the same everywhere. We still wouldn't always know exactly what the solution is. You might have to try multiple types of solutions in different places. Though I suspect someone listening to this who says, well, listen, you already mentioned that the homicides um, homicides as a result of gun violence um, are up. Here's a solution. Let's not have guns, right? That, that would solve the problem. 
Um, and, and again, this is also a very polarized issue, right? This is the kind of issue that lends itself to, listen, I don't want to have a conversation about any kind of gun control because, again, it's a slippery slope or the opposite. I don't want to have any kind of conversation that doesn't involve total gun control, right? Right. I mean, I, I think that no matter what it is that we want to propose as a solution, the fundamental question is what's the evidence for it? Yeah. And um, I mean, and it's really easy to say, well, if we didn't have guns, then we wouldn't have gun violence. Okay, fair enough. But we have hundreds of millions of guns that are owned legally and Ill- illegally all over the country. Mm-hmm. So just to say like, well, if we didn't have guns, we wouldn't have crime. Well, okay, maybe that's true. I don't know. But right. even if it were true, it's hardly a solution because guns at this point are sort of like gravity. It's <laughs> just a, a given in the analysis. And then now the question is how to, how to figure out how to, you know, recognize that reality and then act within it. And there are ways that you can, um, that you can do this without, you know, focusing on what would traditionally be called gun control. Right. It, because it's not necessarily guns that are the problem. A lot of times it's illegal guns that are the Mm -hmm. problem. And a lot of times it's illegal guns that have been passed around in very tight friend networks for a long time that are the problem. In fact, there was a paper that just came out a couple of weeks ago that made the point that heightened gun purchases over the course of the pandemic mm-hmm. could not be linked to the homicide spike um, in any meaningful way. And, and that's consistent with what a, the research sort of, sort of shows about gun violence, particularly gang gun violence, that these are these are long-standing illegal guns that have been floating around these tight-knit communities for a long time. And it takes a long time for guns that are legally owned to sort of make their way into the illegal market. And there are a lot of ways that that happens. And it is a big problem, um, but that is the, the problem, right? Like you can yeah. have massive legal gun ownership and it probably won't impact the crime rate too much. It's the, it's the, it's the, shift from the legally owned gun to getting it into the illegal market that tends to um, to impact the crime rate because you have people who are now more inclined to be shooters now they have the means to do it mm-hmm. and so disrupting those those pipelines is an important part of it that said and we just had a paper that came out a couple of weeks ago um, that that was a response to president biden's anti-violence plan that he announced right. a couple of weeks back. And one of the, the points we made was that focusing on that legal to illegal gun pipeline might pay off in the long run, but it very it is not likely to reduce the homicide spike in the short term, precisely because most of the guns that are involved in these shootings have been illegally owned for a long time. And most of right. the guns that are legally owned now will take a while to get into that market. So we might, you know, over the long term, obviously, you want to stop illegal gun ownership and illegal gun carrying. And, and one of the things we've, we've learned over the past few years is that a person who carries a gun illegally is considerably more likely to use that gun. Sure. Um, so, and, and not just a matter of like, oh, well, he has it. It's, it's the tendency of someone who's carrying a gun illegally is that person is much more likely just to use that gun hmm. than a person who carries a gun legally. Um, right. And so, like, disrupting that entire enterprise of, of guns going from legal hands to illegal hands and and disrupting people from carrying illegal guns and then 
stopping the people who carry illegal guns from actually using them. Those are sort of like the three choke points that you want to disrupt if you really want to get a handle on on gun violence. Um, and, and the president's plan does does do that to some effect. And I guess we'll just have to see how it how it plays out. But at least it's on the right track, I think. Yeah, for sure. These things are all related, but the big categories here are, you know, the the crime, whatever the cause is, acknowledging all that, it's there, um, the increase in homicides is there, it's in the news, and how police are or are not effective in minimizing crime. But I definitely want to give you an opportunity to talk about where you see opportunities for kind of navigating in between abolish police, you know, back the blue and um, application to the specific issue of increase in homicides. Um, and I guess one thing I also want to, to ask as you're talking about that is to sort of parse out for us a little bit where this is relevant at the national level, but what parts are important at the local level and, you know, the right kind of forum to to talk about these things, whether it's in the national news or because you just mentioned, you know, President Biden's um, anti-violence bill, right? Clearly the discussion's going on at the national level, but it's not, it's not not relevant at the local level too. Sure. So I, I think if on the first part of that question, I, I think that there's a there's a tendency for people to think that if we want to get violent crime under control, we've just got to turn the police loose to do whatever they want in these communities and that will solve it. And so that's what we need to do. And on the other side, they, it, the tendency is like, well, you know, we can't allow police to do anything in our communities mm-hmm. because again, they we're inherently unjust and so on. And so even if violence is out of control, We've got to turn to alternative solutions, um, you know, root causes and things like that. And so I think people are, some people are, are willing to kind of tolerate more violence, usually not in their own communities, by the way, but violence in, in other communities, mm-hmm. if it means keeping police off the streets or not mm-hmm. giving, giving law enforcement more money or whatever. And on the other hand, like I said, you know, it's, well, if we just let police do whatever they want, then we can get violence under control. And that's what really needs to, to, that's the priority, get the violence under control. And my opinion on this is that those two things are actually not in conflict, right? Like we, we, can, we can get violence under control and reform the police and make them accepted and, and legitimate partners in communities, in part because... The research indicates that perceived legitimacy of police has an impact on violent crime. Um, if the police are perceived to be illegitimate actors, then the people in the community on whom the police need to rely in order to solve homicides, in order to, to clear these crimes, in order to protect the community, they don't cooperate with them. Even right. victims of violent crime will not cooperate with police. Some of them they won't tell them their names. They can be shooting victims themselves and they won't tell police their own name. Because they uh, don't trust them. Because they don't trust them. And, and again, this goes back to uh, recognizing longstanding abuses and longstanding um, 
you know, systemic perceived oppression and, and, and recognizing that the people who are making those claims are not just making them up and recognizing that, that those claims have some legitimacy to them and, and recognizing that they need to be uh, taken seriously. But at the same time, recognizing that the police, when they do their jobs well, and when they're given the resources to do their jobs well, can in fact provide the public safety benefits that the same communities want. And this is mm-hmm. the thing I think that a lot of people miss. We had a great paper from our senior fellow, Michael Fortner, who researched and surveyed the black community itself and said, like, what do you want from the police? And rather than what you hear from the sort of vocal progressive left on this, the answer was not, well, we want less police presence in our neighborhoods and we want them to go away. What they want is more police presence or the same amount. They want to be protected by the police. They want the public safety benefits that police provide and that they believe they provide, but that they don't want to be subjected to abuses by the police, right? Like they don't want their nephew or their son to be roughed up by a police Mm -hmm. officer on his way to school or to be stopped and frisked 50 times for no reason or whatever. And so the, the, the point I was making in the Hill piece is that we can do both of these things. If we give law enforcement the tools and the resources they need to put more police on the street, to do more patrols, to do focus deterrence, to do, you know, all of the things that they do well, but we also make, we could condition those things on improving police legitimacy. What you're going to get is two things. One, you're going to get reduced violence in the short term because of just the basic surge of police mm-hmm. personnel that the research indicates will reduce homicides, right? More police, fewer homicides. That's a, the, the, the basic finding of the academic research here. But then over the long term, you're going to increase the legitimacy of the police within those communities, which in turn will reduce violent crime even more as the community cooperates with the police, right? A victim of a violent crime in a low legitimacy area will pick up a gun and retaliate rather than go to the police. And Mm. that person who is the the person against whom, you know, like like the original aggressor will then pick up a gun and go to the next guy. Right. Like the, in this, like, so you have this gang retaliation that never ends because nobody is willing to go to the police to stop it. And in a place with high legitimacy, well, maybe that first victim of violent crime doesn't pick up the gun and retaliate, but he calls the cops and says, hey, I was the victim of a crime. They clear the crime. The community can see that the police are taking care of them, that they that they take these things seriously, that they want to protect them. And then over time, if you leave that running for a while, uh, you're going to get better outcomes across the board. And, so, yeah. and that was the basic idea of, of the Hill piece is that if we're yeah. just willing to set aside some of these these sacred cows of our identities about this issue, then we can come together and, and, and really deliver better public safety outcomes and better procedural justice outcomes to the same communities that are crying out for both. Uh, but, and, and, but, and as I also said, I mean, maybe that's difficult, maybe it's impossible, but I do think that that's what we have to do if we're to move this conversation productively. I really like that. Yeah. Uh, so let's, the question that I was asking with respect to the national level and the local level, let me combine that with another question that I think we, we like to ask people um, when they're on the podcast, which is, you know, we've got people in the audience who are people who care about their communities. They're 
they want things to get better. They're really smart entrepreneurial people who um, have success in their lives in all sorts of different ways. If, if I'm sitting here listening to this, whether I'm on the train or I'm in my car, you know, or whatever, and I'm thinking, yeah, that sounds right to me, right? Like we got to think a little bit more about a nuanced way to approach these things. Um, is, is if somebody wants to take action or be supportive of that direction, are they better off thinking where, like, what do I do in my community to address that? Or are they better off thinking about it at the national level? Like, well, I should vote for this person or I should support this or that. Um, And it may not be either or, it may be both, but what can somebody who's got that concern and, and recognizes the, the pragmatism and the, you know, optimism, I think of what you're describing as a kind of different way of approaching this, how do they, how do they act on that? Well, I do think that it's probably both and rather than either or mm-hmm. because the conversations are happening all over. The, they're happening at in the Capitol in D.C. They're happening in state capitals and they're definitely happening at the, the, the uh, local level as well. I, I think, well, the first thing I would suggest is just if that's your belief, if you're persuaded by the, the sort of moderate pragmatist agenda on this is to not be afraid to vocalize it. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I think that a lot of times because one side or the other is so vocal and is so loud that if you, if you, if you think one thing, you're afraid of being sort of lumped into the one side or the other completely. And so if you say like, Hey, you know, the research actually does show that putting police personnel on the streets and using them in particular ways can reduce homicide rates. Well, then all of a sudden you you run the risk of just being a, an apologist for the worst excesses of, of police. And at the same time, if you, uh, you know, if you, if you take the other position and may, okay, now you're, you're going to be lumped into the abolish, you know, if you recognize that maybe there are some room, there's room for improvement on some margin in in most police departments. Oh, well, you're just an anti-law enforcement radical, you know? And so I get, I totally get the incentive of anybody out there who it just says, you know what, I'm going to stay out of this altogether because anything I say is going to be taken out of context and I'm going to be lumped in with people I don't really agree with on one side or the other. So I'm just going to just stay out of it altogether. But so I I do think that if you are individually persuaded of this, this basic pragmatist position and, and you do think that there's some value in it, the first thing I would do is just to say, speak up about it, right? Like mm-hmm. if you find yourself in a Facebook discussion or something, you know, just take that position rather than, than some other position um, and just, you know, sort of share the, the basic idea. And there's a lot of folks out there who, who do have this opinion, um, just sharing those things with your, within your social networks and, you know, to whatever degree you are interacting with people who matter on the policy side of things, whether it's elected leaders or, or whomever, um, sharing that position with them, I think is, is the most sure. effective way to do it. I think the, the politicians hear the extremes. They yeah. need to hear the more pragmatic folks. They need to know that there is a, a contingent of their constituencies who, who take this stuff seriously on an intellectual level and are not just throwing red meat to one extreme or the other. And the more we can persuade them that, that, you know, the, the vital center is out there, then I think the, the more likely they are to pay attention to it. 
Very good. Very good. If people want to follow the work that you're doing, what's the best place for them to do that? Uh, well, I mean, you can certainly find the Niskanen Center online at uh, www.niskanencenter.org. Um, and if you go there, you can find all the criminal justice stuff that we do. You can see what we're about, see our, all of our people and, and some of the papers that we've put out, uh, some of the academics with whom we're affiliated who have done fantastic work and will continue to do great work. So the first place to go is just the, the Niskanen Center website itself. Um, I'm on Twitter basically all the time. Uh, my handle's at G Newburn. Um, so yeah, I mean, I probably Twitter and the Niskanen Center page are the, the two places to find us. Perfect. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Greg, for taking the time to be with us today. We really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I really enjoyed talking to Greg, and I particularly appreciate the way that he thinks about the subject and the importance of how we frame the subject and how we talk about it. I think that's very much in line with the kinds of things we're interested in learning more about. So we'll link to the article in The Hill in the show notes, as well as some of the other pieces that Greg talked about. I think there's a lot to take away from this. First, just the facts uh, in terms of what is happening, what historically has happened in terms of policing and in terms of crime and violent crime. But what I will probably continue to think about from this discussion is Greg's point near the end of our conversation about the importance of speaking up. If you do not hold a position at one or the other ends of the spectrum, the the extreme positions as he described them, it's important to speak up about your own moderate position or more moderate position so that others can hear that they're not alone but also to flag that it's important to you that there are practical and non-extreme responses, things that are a little bit more nuanced uh, that we will need to consider in order to make things better in our communities. And I think that is a message we have heard over and over again from various guests on the podcast uh, who have really interesting things to say about subjects in the news that we all need to remind ourselves to bring a little nuance to the discussion, and to be willing to stand up for more moderate positions. If you like the conversation and if you like the podcast, I hope you will take a moment to rate and review us so that others will also have an opportunity to join these conversations and to hear from great and interesting people like Greg. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. We'll see you next time for another conversation.